Hello and welcome to Biblical Breadcrumbs. In this episode, we'll be in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 53, uh, going into chapter 14, going through about verse 12, I think is where we'll end up today. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 53. So um, we're picking up here at the end of chapter 13, which if you've heard me talk in the last couple episodes, we've been, well, I've been mentioning a couple times at least, that this is kind of the center of the book, chapter 13 being the middle of a 28-chapter book that doesn't work mathematically, but thematically it really does. Um, Matthew's gotten to the third sermon of Jesus here, and this is what Jesus really wants to emphasize, and so we've taken a few weeks now and looked at the kingdom of heaven from all of these different kinds of pictures. Um, Jesus opened with the idea of parables in the beginning of chapter 13, talking about the sower and the setup for the kingdom of heaven and what that kingdom, well, the type of people who will receive it and who might reject it anyway. And we looked at several aspects of the kingdom of heaven. Um, in verse 24, it's compared to the man who sowed good seed in his field. In verse 31, it's the mustard seed. In verse 33, it's the leaven. In verse 44, it's the treasure. In verse 45, it's the merchant who searches for the pearl. In verse 47, it's that net that's thrown out into the sea. And there's also the mini parable in verse 52, if you want to consider it like that. And so Jesus has, has talked about all of these aspects of the kingdom of heaven. It's super valuable, right? It, it's, more than, it's more than worth whatever you work and whatever you pay for it. It catches all kinds of people. And ultimately, well, judgment comes on everyone, even those in the kingdom. And so you've seen a bunch of different aspects of the kingdom of heaven. Now at the end of chapter 13, there's this little story and you can see this as connected with the rest of chapter 13, and it definitely is to some extent. I don't typically read this as part of the sermon, part of the sermon that was coming from verse 52. Uh, if you want to read it like it is, that's totally fine. I mean, it's in the same chapter for a reason, and it's relevant, but uh, you don't have to read it like that. And I don't know. I don't tend to read it like that. If you want to, that is totally fine. It's up to you. But we've looked at the kingdom of heaven, and these ideas are definitely present when Jesus ends up leaving this area. So look at Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. He went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all of these things? And they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. And so again, you have this kind of weird story at the end of it. Granted, throughout the sermon, Jesus has been moving around a little bit in verse um, 34 and verse 36 especially. He's just straight up left locations and moved somewhere else. Um, but at the end of this sermon, he leaves. He leaves the parables behind and he goes back home. And he goes back home to go and teach, right? Not to just go home, not to be with his family. Uh, it's the holiday season. We're all going back to be with family, except... Jesus, well, that's not really his objective because, um, well, I think we've seen earlier in the book, or maybe it's later. I'm confusing where it is in Matthew. 
Um, I believe it's earlier in the book where his mother and his brothers come to him and Jesus says, well, these aren't my mother and my brothers. The people who do the will of the father, those are my mother and my brothers. And so he's going back home, not for the purpose of physical family, but for the purpose of helping his spiritual family, his actual family. That's why Jesus is going. So he finishes speaking, and he goes back home. He goes back to the synagogue. Now, it's interesting, and here's, here's some major connection, I guess, with verse 51 and 52. That last story he ended with is a story about people who really know the law, the teachers of the law, um, lawyers, possibly some translations might say. Um, maybe I'm just making that up. No, scribes, I think, is what the other translations may say. Um, these teachers of the law who are disciples of the kingdom, well, now, after converting to Jesus, after actually believing in him and listening to him, they'll finally start to be able to bring valuable stuff out of the knowledge that they have. Not just what they used to know, but what they can now know based off of what God has given them. And so Jesus goes home, and he goes right to the synagogue, right to where the teachers of the law would be, right to where people who know this law would live, and he goes and teaches there. And the response is not what he said in verse 52. The, the response is not someone who converts and who's able to then take that information and use it in a valuable manner. The idea he, he comes across in, I presume, Nazareth, his hometown, is people who ignore him. And they do this in a very interesting way as well. Look in verse 54. Because in verse 54... They're astonished, right? They see him come into the synagogue, start teaching. They are astonished. And they end up saying, hey, this guy is wise. This guy does have miracles on his side. He does have these blessings from God. But then in verse 55 and in verse 56, they put that aside. They put away those facts and they call to mind other facts, the, the things that they knew about him from before. He's the son of a carpenter. Here's his mother. Here's his siblings. We know them from before. And so where did he get all this? Where did he get the miracles? Where did he get the wisdom in verse 56? We know who he is. There's no way that he could be who he says he is. And so in verse 57, they are offended by him. And Jesus responds to them. He says the famous line, A prophet is with honor in his hometown and in his household. He adds that in here. And thus, because they don't believe, because they don't want to believe, because they don't care about who he actually is, they've judged him off of who they thought he was. And so he does not much there. Not many miracles. You know... These people saw facts. I think it's pretty clear that they saw the facts in verse 54. They understood things about Jesus. And yet they went back to their preconceived notions, and they went back to their ideas, and regarded those as more viable than what God himself testified about Jesus. Do you see a problem with that? We'll talk about that more at the end. And so we get into chapter 14 now. At the end of... The end of um, this sermon or, or this story after the sermon, whichever you want to consider it, we get into chapter 14, and let's just read the first couple of verses here. 
um, Jesus moves on, or well, not not Jesus moving on, not yet. That's going to happen after this next story. Um, Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist, he told the servants. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, a whole lot's just happened in those first two verses, uh, even if you don't recognize it much. So we've jumped characters, right? We're not focusing on Jesus for this story. Well, we kind of are, because it's all spawned from a report about Jesus. But this report goes to Herod, the king. This is not the same Herod as at Jesus's birth in chapter 2. He died in chapter 2, and I think I I think all the way back then I should have made the point that this is not this that was not the same Herod as uh, this one is. But these two are different guys, same family. This is his son or grandson. I'm not sure which, and I don't really care because they're all bad. Um, This Herod hears about Jesus. He hears these stories about Jesus and whatever is going on. And what he says, he, he has an interesting response. That this is John, John the Baptist, who we heard about earlier, who is risen from the dead. We haven't heard about him being dead yet. You know, the last time we saw John was in chapter 11, chapter 11 and verse 2, I think it was, um, where John was in prison. But John hasn't died yet, to our knowledge. And so now Matthew's going to have to go and explain what he means when he says that John is dead. Um, I, I do find it interesting, Herod's response. It seems like something, it seems like a happening that he has an issue with and he's still um, having questions about. So I feel like this is probably a rather recent development that's just happened. I don't know, I could be wrong on that, but that's just my feeling. Um, as soon as he hears about Jesus, he relates him to John. John having just died, it seems, and being raised from the dead. So I would, I would assume that this has happened very recently. I could be wrong, and I don't, I don't really mind either way. Um, and so we'll explore this story now. Brief little story, but a little, well, quite a bit disturbing. Um, a lot of stuff happens here, and hopefully we've heard it before and we know what we're getting into, but. It's, it's not a very pleasant one. So let's start uh, first couple verses here, just uh, chapter 14, verses 3 through 5. Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 3. For Herod had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, since John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd, since they regarded John as a prophet. So, a um, couple interesting things here. Firstly, what what's the problem? What's the root of the problem? It's Herod's own, not incompetent, Herod's own evil. Go ahead and say that. Um, taking his brother's wife, which it's it, it was a weird situation. Historically, I believe Herod was married. Herodias was definitely married. Um, to Herod's brother Philip, and both Herod and Herodias divorced their spouses so that they could marry each other. John, obviously, as, you know, the messenger of God and trying to do what God wants him to do, speaks up against that because that's not lawful. That's against what God said. That's against what God's always said. And so, hey, it's not lawful for you to do that. That's the complaint. 
And so Herod arrests him. Is it because Herod hates John? Maybe, and, and quite possibly, verse 5 seems to indicate Herod wanting to get rid of John. Um, maybe it's just to keep John away from the crowd so that Herod stops getting as bad of a reputation. Although if he's imprisoning a holy man, maybe he's still getting that reputation. Anyway, I don't know exactly what he's doing here, but he wants to kill John, and so he at least imprisons him, at least puts him where he doesn't have to deal with him too much. Now, I was I was reading um, Mark's account yesterday, Mark chapter 6, and it's a little bit different from this. A few of the details differ. Uh, we can talk about that at some point if you want to, but for our purposes, we're going to stick in Matthew and think about what Matthew has to say about this account. So, John, as this scene is this prophet, at least, um, he's been imprisoned by the king, and by king, I mean like the, the governor of Judea, basically. Okay, but John's not dead yet. And so what does it mean in verse 2 when he says John is raised from the dead? How do we get to John's death? Well, let's take a look at verse 6. Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 6. When Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and pleased Herod. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And prompted by her mother, she answered, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Although the king regretted it, he commanded that it be granted because of the oaths and his guests. So he sent orders and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. And then the disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. Where do we start with this? See, this... You understand how this is an unpleasant story all around? Because it starts out with a mess of Herod uh, marrying his sister-in-law for whatever reason, um, and it just kind of gets worse. And so Herod's birthday comes around. Um, apparently they celebrated birthdays back then. Fun fact. Uh, and Herodias's daughter, I'm assuming that's not Herod's daughter, so that would be his niece, um, comes in and, and dances before him and his guests, and that makes Herod happy. Uh, people have various interpretations on that. I'm not going to get into it because I don't really care. The facts are still the facts, and, and whatever the case is, he promises to give her a whole lot. Whatever it is she wants. If you look at Mark, it's, it's up to half his kingdom. And, well, I said we were going to stick in Matthew and not go to Mark, but just thinking about it, uh, Matthew's account is very streamlined. You know, Mark's account, it's a little bit messy. There's a there's movement back and forth as the girl goes back to her mother and asks what she should get because she doesn't know, and her mother commands her, or her mother tells her to get John the Baptist's head. Um, not so here. In verse, in verse 8, prompted by her mother, it seems like her mother almost sent her out with that objective in mind is how Matthew's displaying it. And so she's sent out her niece, thankfully, well, for Herodias anyway, this plan has worked. And now her niece can ask for John the Baptist's head. And what can the king do about it? He could break his word, which he probably should have done and not murdered an innocent guy. Or he can be afraid of the people around and what they're going to think. He can be afraid of his wife and what she's going to think. Um, he can be fearful 
and cowardly and not do the right thing, exactly like he hasn't been doing the right thing through this whole story. And so he sends for an executioner and has John removed. His head's given to the daughter. The daughter goes back to the mother. And the disciples get the rest of his body, I guess, and bury what they can of it, honoring it properly, and come and report it to Jesus. Now we're going to pick up there. We're going to pick up in verse 13 later, or, or next episode, we're going to pick up there and see what Jesus, how Jesus deals with that. But just think about that story and, and, and what John went through, really. Think about what was, what was going on in his head back when he still had it. Um, how did he feel about this whole ordeal? You know what he said in verse, in verse 4? He said, well, here's what God says about everything. And then he didn't speak since. He didn't do anything after that. I guess, he, well, he did do something in Matthew chapter 11. He sent his disciples to go and find the truth after that. How do you think John's feeling in this account? We'll explore that in just a couple minutes. And so Herod has gotten rid of John. This explains verse 2. This explains maybe why he's a little bit paranoid about this. Why he's a little bit worried about this. This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. I was the one who killed him. How is he How is he back? How, how did he come back? How did he return? Because, you know, Herod's executioners probably know what they're doing. But, but John is dead, and this is Jesus instead. It's interesting that he confuses the two of them. That he looks at Jesus and he sees John. You know, back in chapter 4, it's been a while since we talked about this. Uh, actually, back in chapter 3, in chapter 3, uh, in verse 1, talking about John the Baptist, it says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, which is the region that Herod's in charge of, and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. In Matthew chapter 4, then, in verse 12, uh, John, we were told John is arrested, and then in verse 17, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so it's the same message. It's the same message. They're apparently both backed up by miracles, or at least that's how I understand the statement in chapter 14 and verse 2 that miraculous powers are at work. I assume John had miracles. Um, I don't think that's verified anywhere else, so that could just be... Um, that could be Herod thinking, well, after he's resurrected, now he has miracles. Um, I could be, I could be wrong on that. But they're speaking the same message. They're relatively the same person. If you look at accounts like Luke, uh, you'll see that they're related. Jesus and John are cousins of some sort. Then, of course, Herod's going to mistake the two of them. And Herod removed one servant of God from life only to find out that there's a bigger and stronger and scarier servant of God. What's that guy going to do? <laughs> is he going to come get vengeance for John, or is he John back from the dead? How is Jesus going to interact with Herod? That's the question on his mind. And so he's worried about this, and we've gotten, we've gotten now the account of John's death. This is about when Jesus finds out. 
So again, we'll pick up from there next time. We'll, we'll pick up from those ideas and go further with it. See Jesus's response. Uh, he's not very happy about it. And um, be able to continue on with Jesus's story after taking that slight detour into Herod and, and John's story. But let's, let's bring it around and let's talk about a couple, just a couple of practical ideas. I think three of them. Um, first one, first one comes from all the way back in chapter 13, right? Been a while since we were there, about uh, 20 whole minutes. Uh, all the way back in chapter 13, at the end of it, these people, these people at, I assume it's Nazareth, Jesus's hometown, they come in and they, they come into their synagogue, they're listening to his teaching, and they say, wow, he has wisdom. He can do miracles. This is incredible. But don't we know him from before? And then all of that, all of that effort that God went to, essentially, to, to build up Jesus, all of that testimony that God gave, they've invalidated because of their pre-existing opinions. Look at verse 55 and verse 56. Isn't this the carpenter's son? And his mother is called Mary, and his brothers are, are named all of these, and his sisters as well. Where does he get all these things? In the end of verse 56. You know, we're faced with a couple of options, and, and we get to pick between them. We can make uh, We can make our opinions line up with the facts that God's given, or we can make God's facts line up with the opinions that we have. And really what we're asking is, whose word is more important? Is it yours or is it God's? Because God has given Jesus wisdom. He's given Jesus miracles. Those are the facts. And the people see that. And then they take those and say, yes, but our opinions of him... The things we thought we knew before, the things that we can see right now, his family members, the, 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 the facts, I put air quotes on that even though you can't see that, the, the facts that we know tell us something else. And so we're going to go with what we think, we're going to go with our opinion, we're going to go with our own ideas and what we want to be true over what God has clearly indicated to be true. How do you judge? Are, are we the kind of people who judge according to what God said? And then we, we take what God said and we make our judgments off of that? Or are we the people who judge and then try to find Bible stuff that might correspond with it? Are, are we the people who make a decision and then try to make God say what we're saying instead of the other way around? You know, Jesus and, and God, they're the ones with the authority. They're the ones who can dictate the truth. We don't have a right to do that. Let's not be these people from this random Nazareth synagogue. They are not a very good example. God calls them um, unbelievers and dishonorers of him, and we don't want to be like them. Second idea. Uh, second idea that you find in chapter 14, whoa, there's like not super much that's applicable in this story, at least I hope not. Um, don't be Herod, that's pretty obvious. But uh, in chapter 14, look in verse 10. I think it's, it's so strange that John gets one line in this story, and it's what happened way in the past, back when he was arrested, back in chapter 4, right? 
John just doesn't get to talk for the rest of the story. And ultimately, verse 10, he, he sent orders, Herod sent orders and had John beheaded in the prison. That's all. And that's all there is. Think about John the Baptist for just a minute. He is such an important character. Right back in chapter three, um, in the first couple verses of chapter three, I'm not there. Uh, chapter three and verse three, right? He's the prophet who was prophesied. That makes him, you know, pretty important, pretty unique. Um, back in chapter eleven, in verse eleven, what Jesus Jesus is talking and he says, "Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared." Right, and and then the kingdom of heaven citizens are better than he is, but of the Old Testament, of all of the people up until John's point, no one better than him has appeared. He is the best of God's servants. And about how much screen time has he gotten in this book? Because you look at chapter 3. He's in chapter 3. He does some stuff. He's in chapter 4 for a whole uh, one verse. In verse 12, well, Jesus heard that John had been arrested. And Jesus withdrew into Galilee. So he's there for a chapter and a verse. You look at verse, uh, you look at chapter eleven in verse two, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples, and so you see him once in chapter eleven, once in chapter four, about half a chapter here in chapter fourteen, and he worked in chapter three. Now, for the most important servant of God to get about a chapter and a half in a book that's twenty-eight chapters long. You know what the other 26 and a half chapters are dedicated to? Because it's Jesus himself. And here's the question, which one's more important? Which one are we focusing on? Because you can focus on John. John's a cool guy. I mean, go to the book of Luke, right? Go to the gospel of Luke and John dominates in like the first chapter. Um, It's all about his birth and, and Jesus is prophesied too, but it's about John's birth and John being the forerunner. He's, he's an important guy. He had some influence, but he's not the purpose of the book. And so, you know, while he was effective to be a servant, God kept him around and God used him for good. And when he stopped being effective, there was no reason for him to be here anymore. And so God saved him from this horrible existence of living in a prison of Herod's um, and delivered him into himself doesn't seem like the most pleasant way to go but that's that's john's reward he's a servant and so the question is how much do the disciples actually matter now don't get me wrong of course uh, god cares about his people i'm not arguing that at all god cares about them god protects them and sometimes that looks different from what we think it's going to be how much do the disciples matter when you compare them to the lord of the universe How much do the servants matter when the master exists? How much do we care about John when Jesus himself is here and talking to us? So John speaks a little bit. He had a bit of effect. He's important enough to get a chapter and a half. But really, he's not the focus of this book. He was here and now he's gone. Jesus is here all the time. Who who are we who are we emulating, really? Because you can try to be Jesus, 
you can try to take God's place and be the most important there is and, and, and be that famous and such. But really, ultimately, we're God's servants. And God's going to use us as we are useful. And when we're not useful anymore, he'll take us home. Now, that's a very non-romanticized way to look at it. That's not a very appealing way to look at it. But really, that's, that's what it is. We're here to serve, and, well, God will help us to do it well. And so that comes to the third idea. And the third idea is totally a subjective one. It's just, it's just a question. It's kind of in my head. Um, how did John feel about all of this? We're not told. We're not told what his thoughts were. We're not told about what he did. All we're told is that he was put in prison and then he was beheaded eventually. But think about chapter 11 where John sends his disciples to Jesus to find the truth. Think about um, the book of John, not written by John the Baptist, obviously he was dead at this point. Uh, But the book of John in chapter 1 in verse 35 where John's standing with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. Think about, and I I didn't look this up beforehand. I should have looked this up. Um, But think about when, I think it's when John is being approached by his disciples who are saying, Hey, this Jesus is coming. This Jesus is baptizing people. He's like super popular. Uh, are you going to do anything about it? And John says, no, he has to increase so that I can decrease because he's more important. God's servants shouldn't view the the relationship as something to be looked down on, something that they're getting the worst end of or something that they have to put up with. We get to serve God. And that's a pretty cool idea, Right. Nobody else gets to do this except for those of us who are his servants. And so I think John's okay with this. John was useful. He taught people. He brought them to Jesus. He pointed them to Jesus while he was still alive. Um, While he had followers, he sent his followers after God himself instead of trying to reserve them for his own glory and his own pride. How do you think John felt about all of this happening? Because I think he felt okay about it. And ultimately, well, he gets to be with God because he did his job well. How are we going to react, and how do we think about ourselves? Um, ultimately, you know, what, what it comes down to is the master of the house is going to get back and uh we get to serve him we serve him while he's gone and we serve him when he arrives and it's not up to us to take the glory it's not ours to own but it's it's god's we are unworthy servants we are only doing what should have been done so thank you for listening I hope that that's helpful. Those are a few ideas that are um, maybe good reminders of something that we haven't looked at in a little bit, haven't seen in Matthew thus far, I don't think. Um, and hopefully those are helpful. Uh, if a little bit less than, well, less than the happiest of stories, um, still works out pretty well. 
So we'll pick up from there. We'll pick up in chapter 14, verse 13 next time, and we'll go ahead and continue with Jesus' story, knowing that that's a little bit more important than just old John the human. Sure, he did some good, um, but he's out of the picture now. And Jesus is, as it should be, Jesus is all there is. And so I hope that that's helpful. Well, this is uh, week one of being in a different location. And, you know, I got a recording out, so that's pretty good. Hopefully I'll be able to keep that uh, keep that schedule constant and keep going through that. So um, we'll see. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this. I hope it's helpful. I hope that uh, some of the ideas are something useful that you can take and, well, use. So, again, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. And I'll see you on the next episode of Biblical Breadcrumbs.